So I think one of the most important things is to have this mindset of experimentation. The landscape is evolving incredibly rapidly. And if you can't match that pace and innovate ahead of that pace by learning and adapting, then you're going to be left behind. This mindset of, of, of experimentation, learning and adapting is incredibly important, both at the individual and at the product level. Welcome to Quantum Black Voices, a series of interviews with the talented and diverse people building products to capture the transformative power of advanced analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Today, we meet Zane Patel. We talk about the challenges associated with inner sourcing and ensuring quality code can be reused across projects. We talk about why experimentation and iteration is critical to building successful products. And we discuss the amplified value that can be gleaned from ensuring everyone is involved in creative problem solving, regardless of discipline. To learn more about Quantum Black and McKinsey Company, head to www.quantumblack.com. Enjoy the episode. Let's start with an introduction. Who are you and what do you do? So I'm I'm Zane. I'm a software engineer in Quantum Black, um, specifically within Quantum Black Labs. I build some of the products that that, that we work on uh, within within QB. Awesome. How did you find your way to Quantum Black? Tell us a little bit about your, yourself and your background. Yeah, um, I like the story because it's it's always um, it's a little funny. So. Before QB, I was actually studying uh, maths at university, and I went, I went, I went to university knowing that I loved maths and I did, I had no idea what I wanted to do afterwards. Um, so it was just three years of maths, and I figured out that I'd, I'd find out what, what I want to do at some point um, there. In second year, with the sort of rush for internships that everybody gets when everybody gets manic and, and deciding, okay, we've got to do an internship, I figured that um, as a mathematician, it was either finance or, or data science, um, and finance sounded boring, so. Um, I went to a couple of careers fairs, found this really small startup that was doing um, like preactive maintenance for airlines. So airlines would tell them, this is my flight path. I had, and then it calculates, okay, it had this much dust and nitrogen and it probably needs a, ma- a repair like around now. So I signed up as a data scientist intern there, rocked up on the first day of the summer holidays at this super small, it's like this incubator in Cambridge, bring your own laptop, 10, 10% startup working around a, a communal desk. And they kind of looked at me like, oh yeah, you're starting today, aren't you? Um, we don't really have any data or data science for you to do yet, but we do have this API that we're building out so that airlines can actually submit their, their flight paths and that we can do some, some high performance computing on the back end to actually calculate stuff like the dust exposure and, and all the stuff and actually build the data. Do you want to stay on and, and do it? And I kind of looked at them and went, I don't really have much of a choice, do I? Do I think yeah, it's I also it. a pretty brief pitch, right? <laughs> yeah, we've got some things, you know, there's an API, there's some dust. <laughs> okay, so there, were, there wasn't really another option, so you stuck around. Yeah, so I stuck around. Uh, I spent four months there. It was pretty much me, uh, one other engineer, and the CTO, who was basically just the third engineer. I learned so much and had such a blast. Um, there were times when I was literally hanging outside like the top floor window with this like cheap aerial monitor to try and capture flight paths over Cambridge because we could uh, we couldn't afford any actual data sets. Um, and I just learned so much about like designing systems, um, building APIs, about learning Python, just um, working as a team and, and all the stuff that you don't get from just working on your own, working on toy projects. And I loved it so much that when I went back to university four months later, 
I was like, I think I know what I, I want to do. And so a year went by, um, studied and I, on the sort of typical grad, grad hunt, um, I was looking for somewhere that had this startup feel. So this, this ability to just get stuff done, um, this sort of manic energy that that's around that everybody has this, this ownership mindset of just, you know, doing things and being super motivated and being super smart and just learning from them, but also a place where, you know, I, I know that my next paycheck was coming in. <laughs> um, and, and I think QB Labs really fed that for me. So I joined, um, it's been, I think just about a year and a half in now. And I think it's been pretty much what I thought in, in some ways and, and in other ways, not so much, but yeah, it's been a, it's been a fun ride. So it was uh, the the experimental nature of a startup, but with the reliability of a, a mature company that you were looking for. Yeah, bit and of, bit of a holy grail kind of thing. That isn't literally, it? yeah, <laughs> um, it very much was. Um, I felt like I just sort of stumbled across the right thing. Um, wasn't really expecting to find something like that, but it, it came along, and I was like, "Yeah, cool, this is for me." Why why data science? Why was it that you came out of your 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 maths degree and thought, you know, data science, artificial intelligence? What what, what attracted you to that? I think like, at that point, it was very much all the, the hype around it that I had heard of it. Uh, but also the one thing that sort of piqued my interest there was that um, there's all these things around, oh, you know, like spend, spend a couple of days doing this course and learning data science. Um, and everybody seemed to think that the hard part of it was sort of the underlying maths behind it, the actual just fundamentals. Um, and so you, you do lots of courses trying to just learn how to use a library like Pandas or, or TensorFlow and try and, and, and build your data science skills using just these frameworks without ever really getting a good understanding of that. For me, I felt it was a good opportunity because I, that was the easy part for me, essentially. And just, I thought there was lots of cool things being done in that space, just the ability to work in a variety of areas. So one of the things that that's with this with me is I have a very short attention span. So I'm always flitting around doing different things. Um, and again, just being able to, to learn one thing that applies to so many different industries, both for data science and software engineering, right? Cause you never work on a problem in isolation. You're working within a domain, uh, but you're a software engineer in finance or in, in airlines or something. And you get to work across a bunch of different things, applying your software engineering skills to different problems. And so that really appealed to me both with data science and, and software engineering. Cool. So you landed in Quantum Black. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on. So at the moment, what I'm working on is I'm working within this problem space of helping our internal teams try and reuse and, and share code between themselves. So QB was, you know, 100, 200 people uh, company a couple of years ago. And it was super easy to do a bunch of projects and you knew everybody in the company, right? You would walk around the office and you knew everybody's face and you, you knew what everybody was working on. And so when you came across a client project um, and you needed maybe an anonymization pipeline, you knew exactly who had built that on a couple other projects and you could walk up to their desk and sort of tap them on the head and go, and I have the, the anonymization pipeline. Now that we're, we're growing and now that we're sort of scaling into McKinsey as well, this, just, this approach is just on scale. Um, there are new faces around the office all the time. There are new offices as well, all across, all across the globe. And this approach of just knowing who to ask just doesn't scale. And so what I'm working on is being able to essentially scale that approach up so that people can have a central repository of easily discoverable and usable assets, specifically focused at the moment on, on analytics assets that they can reuse in their projects for a variety of reasons. One is just, you know, just to save time, uh, meaning that you can do stuff that is actually adding value rather than rewriting stuff that you know already exists also just being able to de-risk things because you're using something that you know has been it's been put up there for everybody to look at for people to comment on for people to review find bugs in um and it's kind of 
it's not quite at the scale of open source, but it's sort of open source within this closed ecosystem. I guess we call it inner sourcing. Um, and the benefits of that Makes come sense. with, yeah, the benefits <laughs> that, you know, that it, it's high quality code. And so it's de-risking the project, right? You're, you're no longer in a, in a case where you have to worry about the quality of everything. And in a sort of typical uh, project, which is essentially time-tied, it is, you tend to cut corners here and there and you, you know, tend to have to drop quality here and there and be able to do things fast. And this hopefully means that we can we can just de-risk that and, and make sure that at least certain parts of the projects will will be of super high quality, mean that you have more time as well to upscale and up-qualify the rest of the project. <laughs> um, you just, just made that one up. I just made yeah, that yeah, word yeah. up, yeah. It, it made sense though, let's run with it. <laughs> so just to play devil's advocate for a moment, why is uh, an enterprise installation of GitHub not the solution here? Or not the complete solution? That's a, that's a good point. And that's something that we thought about quite a lot as well. And what we found when looking into GitHub, and we've actually tried it a couple of times in the past, was that there are a couple of things. So GitHub is great for sharing um, code, but it does have some drawbacks, or at least it's a lot of value that we, that we think we can do with sharing analytics codes. So things like analytics practitioners will, will use notebooks that have a lot of interactive plots and will be you know, sort of showcasing the, 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 the abilities of their model doing lots of sort of data-driven things that are really well suited to a notebook environment and GitHub doesn't play too well with those. They're great for static documentation, but not so much for, for that thing. So there's lots of, there's lots of value out that we can do there. And on top of that, um, there's this layer of discoverability that we can do. So things like being able to filter for specific tags, being able to tag content with stuff, um, being able to search through things is stuff that GitHub just isn't great at. And we can also again, um, do extra stuff with this to tailor it to this analytics mindset. So we can specifically optimize for searching and, and filtering and tagging by by analytics things. And um, on top of that, one of the things that we found as well was there's this contribution um, friction with GitHub and with Git. Analytics practitioners are great at the actual analytics, but not all of them necessarily have the tooling expertise like Git to be able to contribute um, in, a, in a really seamless fashion, which acts as a bit of a disincentive. And so we've tried, like one of the first, one of the first things that we focused on on top of discoverability was this reducing this friction of contribution uh, because the only way that you're going to get momentum is if there is enough content on there. And if people aren't putting up content because of, of this friction, then that isn't great for us. So we've, we've engineered um, this, I guess, this additional layer to improve discoverability, to reduce contribution friction, and also to increased sort of this exposition style that, that we want to have for, for our posts. Got you. So there's a layer there that adds additional context and discoverability for our teams internally. Exactly. Yeah. And I think you mentioned this earlier, but uh, quality is, is really important too in terms of de-risking the re reuse of that thing. Mm -hmm. how, how do we handle that? Because I guess if it was just a free-for-all for people to throw code up anywhere and everywhere... Uh, that, that we're actually introducing more risk to our projects, aren't we? Yeah, that's a very that's a very good point because one of the things that we think about is in, with scaling is are we scaling in the right way? Um, are we just you know sharing um, bad quality code around and, exa and ex exacerbating the problem? The way that we do it is we rely heavily on a system of peer reviewing. This wasn't our first approach. Our first approach was trying to manage reviews centrally. So having the team actually do the reviews and make sure that everything that goes in is of good quality. 
and that that just it worked well, it worked well for a while but it just didn't scale like you can yeah. imagine like we, we we had a massive backlog of posts and also it was also bad in a, in a different kind of way because not you weren't an expert in everything so you'd have a post come in that wasn't a specific subject area um, you know maybe sort of explainable ai and nobody on the team had any specific experience with it and so you could review the code quality and stuff which is which is fine but probably what's more important there is the underlying methodology um and can you actually review that that it makes sense um that the person saying it can be used in these situations is that actually correct and so we 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 moved on to the system of peer review instead where we let the community essentially self-govern self-self-govern themselves and we found that um with this ecosystem of incredibly motivated and smart people there's just this natural incentive to to and, and this natural sort of motivation to go about and and review other people's pieces of work that's lucky though right that attitude and mindset to support the community is ingrained into the engineering discipline at large. Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's that, but also more than that. I think it's because everybody has this ownership mindset and everybody wants to contribute to having the, set, the central repository of, of information and, and they all sort of, they can see the overall goal and they want to contribute to it. Got you. And wh- how, how do you handle things like maintenance? Because we're assuming here that these things are going to be reused. What's the, how, how are we approaching that? Again, very much inspired from the open source model. Uh, our first approach was to have the, the authors of a given piece of, of, of asset be the, the people responsible for, for maintaining it. And then we found that that just didn't scale and wasn't fair on the authors for putting out an initial piece of work. Maybe they had just used it on a couple of projects, saw that it was a candidate for reuse and, and put it up, um, got a couple of reviews, cleaned it up, made it better, and then sort of published it. Uh, but then expecting them to continually maintain that forever um, actually ac- acted as a disincentive for them contributing in the first place. And so we switched this model of, again, um, having the community do it. And so we introduced um, this notion of versioning, which as a technical problem is, is incredibly um, interesting. But this meant that the community would, you know, as they would use the post and, and figure out things that weren't quite correct, would just contribute back to it. So just small iterative improvements spread across a large number of people meant that it was a very small effort across each individual person but led to a really big uptick in quality across time and i think that's been really working for us and again is relying on the luckiness of having an incredibly motivated group of of, of people that are willing to do that and are Mm. and are motivated and can see the overall vision and goal um, and want to do it i love the fact that you referenced a number of times during that description that there were multiple approaches. So you said one of the things that attracted you to Kubu Labs was the experimental opportunities there. The fact that we have made multiple approaches to solve these problems suggests that ex- experimental, uh, an experimental culture is important to the way we approach these problems. What, what other mindsets do you think are important to uh, a product organization like Kubu Labs? What, what other mindsets should employees and stakeholders think about adopting if they want to create something similar? Uh, yeah, I think you're right on the on the on the nose there with this iterative and the way I like to say it is that good design is is redesign. If you aren't redoing things and and, and iterating on them um, and changing your approach and having an open mind to changing your approach, then you're on you're on doing it correctly. The other thing that I think is super important is this mindset of ownership. I think you need to, um, and this sort of ties back into the general thing of of just having good people, of having good and exceptional talent, and motivating them and giving them the opportunity to own stuff. Uh, because once they once they own stuff, then 
they, they build really amazing things and they're motivated to do it. And also I think what I've found is that quite often uh, people don't fully utilize uh, some of the resources they have. So at, at, at a couple of other places, engineers are used as, I guess, just engineers um, and designers are used as just as just designers. Where when I mean just engineers and just designers, they're, they're only responsible for writing code. Um, maybe a couple of like technical design stuff and designers are the same with, with design stuff, but then you aren't utilizing some of that creativity that they have. Like engineers and, de- and designers are incredibly creative people. They understand at the technical level, at the, deeply at the technical level, what's what's going on and also have ideas um, for the product as a whole. Um, the product, the product vision, the, the product direction, and also just what like the environment that the product lives in. So within QB Labs, we're split into a couple of different products. Uh, but we as labs have this overall manifesto that we're trying to push and giving people this ownership mindset and having people have this ownership mindset and empowering them to to push the product um, in the direction that, that they see fit, uh, contributing overall to the direction of labs as a whole is I think a super important thing. That's really interesting. I think this theme has come up a couple of times in previous interviews, which is that you shouldn't box people into what the, we believe to be their role and responsibility on a project, but actually creative problem solving in a product environment is a team sport where everyone gets involved and provides different perspectives depending on their background and their skills etc absolutely yeah so to give a little bit of flavor to uh, other individuals interested in being an engineer within qb labs can you describe a a typical day or what you might get up to yeah absolutely um so i think we, we, at QB Labs, we've got sort of the, the standard product engineering um, day where I wake up with a stand up, discuss things like blockers, the tickets that you're working on, things that, that you're, that, that, that's coming up, um, socialize as well a little bit, then just writing code, which is a surprisingly small part of my day, um, reviewing other people's code, which is, I think, a fantastic way to, to learn and, and just see what's going on design sessions so both technical where you're talking to other engineers about um, how the thing that you're building fits in with the with the system as, as a whole um, any sort of technical high level things that aren't just implementing code design sessions that aren't technical so talking to the designer you know reading up on some of the interview notes that they've made figuring out what this means in terms of our product direction um, all of that that's sort of the typical product engineering day. And then within, within QB and QB labs, you've got sort of that half of your life. And then you've also got just all the other stuff that you do that you kind of just pick up on, um, by being there. So I run a couple of the volunteering stuff that, that we do in, in QB as of late, what have we've been working with, uh, teens and AI. So that's, um, this organization that tries to bring in children age between, I think 11 to 18 with a focus on underrepresented groups into AI. And so, they, they have a hackathon and I've been leading, we've been building out this Python course, um, this YouTube sort of uh, video series on, on the, the basics of Python. Um, so just doing some of that or talking to other people. And I think a lot, a good part of my day is spent doing sort of these extracurricular stuff, whether it's, it's volunteering for, for these social um, initiatives or whether it's talking to users um, about, about the product or about their project and, and helping them figure out, you know, how to reuse some piece of analytics assets um, that, that we have, just helping them out with that and just sort of wearing a bunch of hats. I think that's a, a super important thing as well, which is related to the ownership mindset, uh, being comfortable with wearing a bunch of hats and, and doing a, a variety of things. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit more about your exposure to users? 
I know that you're actually quite a prolific resident on some of our user channels on Slack. How, how does that work? So yeah, within the products of InQB Labs, we've got these product channels on Slack that are a fantastic way to just have everyday interaction with users. The most popular ones are the ones where they've actually built a community and they were, in, they were initially started as a way for users to essentially ask for debugging help to the, to the actual team. But they've, they've quickly grown into this community space where users are now talking to each other, both about sort of standard debugging help, you know, this is broken, what's wrong here, how do I fix this? But also a lot more interesting things, um, things like I had this idea for starting a video series on, on, on Kedra, for example. And what is Kedro? Just remind us what Kedro is. Yeah, so Kedro is a data pipeline workflow framework and library uh, by QB to essentially help data engineers and scientists incorporate best practices of software engineering into their projects and just standardizing things. Got you. And and this individual was planning on building a video series about it. Yeah. Um, and he was just asking, is anybody else interested? Uh, we've had a bunch of things spin up from that, from video series to discussion forums to talks at various conferences that are being, you know, there's a, there's a, anybody want to give a talk at this conference, whether it's PyCon or AnacondaCon or whatever it is. So yeah, so it's become this community. And I think initially I, we, we have the system of being on call into these user, user channels to, to just answer users' questions. And it, on top of that, it's also been a really good way of just interacting with users and seeing what their day-to-day experiences are like and, and identifying small pain points that you wouldn't if that, that you wouldn't necessarily know because it isn't a big enough pain point for them to complain about or shout loudly about or you know write a feedback ticket for but just everyday small things that you kind of pick up on and bring back to the team um, and just help you get a feel for how your product is being used and what impact does that have on your perspective as an engineer how does that influence your job with this whole wearing multiple hats thing um, it, it influences in, in a variety of ways so like right down to the sort of subtle level where when we're discussing you know what to build next, you, you you have in mind all of the stuff that you've heard users say to get a feel for how your product is actually being used. You know, is it different from what you imagine them from from what you imagine them to be using it for? You know, is there a certain flow that, that you think should work a certain way, but from the vast majority of users you've actually seen that they they think it should work some other way or that they, they're using it in a slightly different way. And you sort of speak about these sessions and you're like, actually I know that this is what we want to build, but this is what you know they seem to think we're building. Um, there's a disconnect here. Maybe we should be building this instead and just tweaking the actual sort of things that we're building uh, based on that. The other way is in um, like actual design sessions. So again, with, with wearing this, this multiple hat and working with a designer and they're going over you know, user interviews and they're talking about um, you know, just really low fidelity prototypes, you have things to back up your opinion um, on that. And, and you and it's really nice having an opinion on that. You know, It's just not looking at what, what somebody is doing and going, cool, this is, this is what the design is going to look like, but you have some, some opinion in saying this is, you know, this is what it is, but actually users think that this is actually for something else. Uh, and maybe we should tweak our design to do that. And, and it's really nice being able to have input into that. Again, just this product ownership mindset. I guess it's not just nice. It's actually beneficial to the product because that, that insight and empathy for the user is going to make it better in the end, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're, you're completely right. It's nice for, for you as an engineer. And I think we can get to that later on. Again, it's it's nice um, to have to be given the opportunity to do that, but obviously, like for the product as a whole, it is it is incredibly bene- bene- beneficial. Yeah, let's talk about that then. Let's uh, say someone lands on a project tomorrow with an engineer. What should they know about their way of working or how engineers can bring their full capabilities to the fore so they can set them up for success, so they can set the team up for success? Yeah. So I think with that, like the best thing you can do is 
involve involve them, um, and that's whether there's an engineer or a designer, just involve them in, in, in anything that that they're that that you can think of, anything to do with the product, because they've got incredibly useful insights. Um, designers have a certain viewpoint and perspective. Engineers also have a certain viewpoint and and and, and expertise. And again, from what I said before, this this creativity that they that they have as as, as designers and engineers can really come to the forefront um, by involving them in these things. And so I think that the best thing you can do is is just give them the opportunity to be involved, and you'll be surprised at how often most of them will jump up and be incredibly glad that they've been given the opportunity to to actually contribute to stuff, um, and will have incredibly interesting viewpoints and stuff to say. And I guess it drives that ownership mindset you were talking about earlier. Absolutely. Very cool. So if anyone that's interested in getting into engineering, where should they start? You know, what resources did you go to as a fledgling engineer? What, what, where, where can they get good resources, education materials, books, etc.? So as a, as a product engineer, I think there's a lot that you can do, but probably nothing as useful as actually just building stuff. I think the expertise that you get from building stuff is just from starting to build things. And you, I, I started out small. So the way that I did it was I went to a bunch of, of hackathons. I found a group of uh, three of the friends. So it was a group of four um, among us. And we were all vaguely interested in just building stuff. And we would go around um, on the weekends to different hackathons and just build really small, cool toy projects. One of the examples we did was we, we built this recommendation system where you didn't put the picture of your background, just where you're sitting. And then it would generate some some background music to to suit you, whether it's like <laughs> chill chill vibes, if you're sort of, you know, in, in a really quiet place or if you're in a sort of super hectic place, it'll do some like techno stuff, <laughs> uh, whatever. Just just things like that. And then um, that, that'll show you what you're interested in and also what you want, what, what you can improve on. Um, and then you, you go ahead and, and do that. One of the things that I follow um, is Paul Graham's blog, so he's a he's one of the co-founders of, of Y Combinator, and he's got this blog that is infre- infrequently updated. But when it is, um, it's got this really strong selection of essays that I always read and and come from feeling super inspired and like I want to go build something now. Um, and so I read a couple of these, you know, every every couple of months or so, just to remind myself. Um, he's got a really good viewpoint on and from an engineering perspective, not necessarily engineering actually, but just from a maker perspective. Um, so maker being an engineer or a designer, and he's got some really good insights into what it's like to to work in those roles um, that I find super interesting. Cool. And just on the hackathons, where where would someone go to to find hackathons near them or, or ones they could get involved in? Uh, yeah. So there's a site called Major League Hacking, um, MLH. So if you just search for that, they have a list of, of hackathons around Europe, um, and I think America as well, that you just uh, sign up to. Um, they link to the specific pages for them, and then they're, they're open to if you're part of university as well, then they will probably run a couple of hackathons or have resources as well to guide you to that. Cool. Thank you very much, Zane. Amazing. Thank you, James. You've been listening to a podcast created by Quantum Black, a McKinsey company. This episode was produced by Tillman Becker and Catherine Shenton and edited by Clementine Rettig and myself, James Mulligan. If you'd like to learn more about Quantum Black, head to www.quantumblack.com. Thank you.